Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motzen. I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are taking a brief break in our series in Deuteronomy. And here we have our friend Mark Horn, who has written many excellent pieces for us over at Theopolis, reading a chapter on conversion from James Jordan, which is from the book The Sociology of the Church. He'll introduce the piece here in a few seconds. If you have not already, we would love for you to join us over on the Theopolis app. There's a bunch of free content on that app, but behind a small monthly or yearly paywall, there are hundreds and thousands of lectures, audio commentary on the Bible, Theopolis courses, video series, and more. For more information, you can head to app.theopolisinstitute.com. That site is linked in the show notes as well. And there you can create an account. After that, download the app, sign in, and you're off to the races. We really hope that you enjoy it. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you are sharpened by this article from James Jordan. And here is Mark Horn reading an article on conversion from the Sociology of the Church by James Jordan. Conversion by James B. Jordan. This essay appeared in The Sociology of the Church, published in 1986. Copyright held by James B. Jordan. The essay begins on page 151 of The Sociology of the Church. It originally appeared in the Geneva Papers, Volume 1, Number 33, November 1984. The Sociology of the Church was republished by Whiff and Stock in 1999. Conversion My purpose in this essay is not to provide a complete theology of conversion, but to comment on an experience I had in the summer of 1984. I was invited to speak at a conservative Presbyterian church. I spoke in the morning and in addition to the regular congregation, I found I was speaking to a group of bright-eyed college students who were in the area for the summer. As part of a basically campus crusade-oriented ministry, this group of students was working at earning money for tuition during the week, attending Bible classes in the evenings, and doing beach evangelism on the weekends. This kind of thing is very common, and I was personally pleased to meet these young people. I was also happy to see that this conservative Presbyterian church had become their home for the summer, welcoming them into its fellowship. As I said above, I spoke in the morning. The evening service was put on by the students, it being their last Sunday in the area. They had formed a chorus and sang some of the modern post-Jesus movement songs that are standard and sadly superficial fare among these people. They also gave testimonies, and one of them preached to the congregation. As I listened to the testimonies and to the little sermonette, I realized that there was a time when this kind of thing would have moved me, but that it no longer seemed very relevant. Was this because my own faith had grown cold? I hope not. Was this because their method of presenting the gospel was so grossly off-base as to be unacceptable? Well, this is sometimes asserted in hardcore reformed circles, and I once felt this way myself. But as I thought about it, I came to a different conclusion, and this essay is the result. 
Let me encapsulate one of the testimonies I heard. A young woman got up and said something like this. When I went to college, I thought I was a good Christian. I didn't use dope, and I'd grown up in a good Christian home and had been active in a good Christian church. But I found out that I wasn't really a Christian. I had to break some idols in my heart and meet Jesus personally. There was this boy, you see. We'd been dating seriously, but he was not a Christian. I didn't want to give him up. I found myself in more and more tension over this. And finally, I got down and prayed that Jesus would just take over. I was finally willing to give up this boy. And you know what? We broke it off, and I've never missed him since. I found something more wonderful to live for. I hope you do too. Now remember, the people she was addressing with this testimony were mostly well over 30 years of age. Many were over 50. I could tell that they were delighted that she had found Christ, but I could also tell that they did not really connect up with her experience readily. Now the testimony I just rehearsed for you is a standard testimony ritual. Impressionable young people take up the forms and attitudes of influential older people who minister to them. And this kind of testimony ritual is standard in campus ministries. Point 1. I thought I was already a Christian. Point 2. I realized I was not because I had not given all to him. Point 3. I gave it all to him and found peace. Point 4. You can too. Now, is there something wrong with all of this? Well, clearly not in one sense, but in another sense there is something wrong. What is wrong is that there is an erroneous understanding of conversion operating here. What is conversion? Conversion is a turning from sin to Christ. Now let's think about that. Does conversion happen only once in a lifetime, or does it happen many times? That is the question, I believe, that needs answering. From my experience, and from my understanding of the Bible and of Christianity, there are four kinds of conversion experiences. First, for a person totally outside the faith, there is an initial conversion experience, when that person comes to Christ for the first time. This kind of conversion has become the norm for everyone, unfortunately, even though it applies to relatively few Christian people. Secondly, there is a daily conversion. Each day, and many times during the day, we have to turn from sinful tendencies and turn back to Christ. These little turnings are so many daily conversions. By magnifying the initial conversion experience, modern evangelism does not say enough about daily conversion. Third, there are what I call crisis conversions. There are crisis points in every Christian's life. At these crisis points, the Christian needs to reaffirm his or her faith by making a major break with some problem that has crept up and make a major turn towards Christ. Fourth, there are what I called stage conversions. By this, I don't mean conversions that are merely put on for show. Rather, I mean that God brings Christians through various stages of growth and maturity. And at each stage, it is necessary for the Christian to come to a fuller understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, I don't think enough justice is done to this matter of stages of life. As a person grows, his understanding of himself, of the world, and of God will change, 
because he is himself changing. His understanding goes wider and embraces more factors of life. He becomes aware of things he was not aware of before. Moreover, his understanding goes deeper and more profound. Learning to adjust to a spouse and then to children, learning to adjust to authorities on the job, and learning how to relate to subordinates, learning how to manage money, etc., all of these things cause a person to deepen and widen his understanding. Hopefully, they cause a person to become more and more wise and stable. These changes of understanding happen slowly and gradually without our being aware of them. One day, however, we wake up and realize that we have changed. I am not the same person I was ten years ago, I realize. And my understanding of God and His ways of what it means to be a Christian had better change too. My faith needs to deepen and broaden. Once again, I need to give all to Him because my understanding of all has expanded. This means that the kind of Christian experience I may have had in college is not the norm for my entire life. This is the important point. The college-type Christian conversion experience may be a very important and necessary stage in my Christian development, but it would be wrong, even perverse, for me to try continually to keep up that kind of light-hearted Christian experience in the midst of a mature adult world, with all its cares, responsibilities, and tribulations. This is why the kind of testimonies these college students were making before the Presbyterian congregation seemed off-base to me. They are not really relevant to my stage of life as a 34-year-old family man. I could appreciate and rejoice in what the Lord was doing with them, but I also saw that he was not doing quite the same thing with me. Between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, I too was converted. I read Billy Graham's World of Flame, and I came to understand for the first time that I had to be justified apart from any of my own works and intentions. I accepted Christ into my heart, and for a month I was on a kind of honeymoon with the Lord. For years, I told people that I had not been a Christian before, only a good churchgoer. I now no longer tell people that. Was I not a Christian before? Was the young woman whose testimony I reproduced above not really a Christian before she went to college? I think I was, and I think she was too. What happened was that we came to a new stage of maturity, a stage at which we needed to understand in a new, more profound way what the Christian faith entails. We went through a crisis and experienced a conversion. I believed in Jesus when I was little, and I'm sure she did too. We were both loyal to him. We kept his rules. We went to his church. We sang hymns to him. We had the kind of faith appropriate for the childish stage of life. When we got to the age 17, however, we needed to deepen our faith. We went through a crisis. We had a conversion. Now the problem comes in the notion that this experience is the one and only conversion for one's whole life. If we think that way, we always look backwards to that conversion. We want to recapture the simplicity of that initial warm experience of the love and acceptance of God, and this is a mistake. It freezes faith at an immature level and prevents us from pressing on to maturity. People influenced by this way of thinking tend to want to recover the experiences of their late teen years. To take a parallel example, 
We see this most commonly in the way people retain a strong, often binding affection for whatever kind of music they listen to in their late teens. People who danced to Lawrence Welk's champagne music were horrified when they're teenagers like the Beatles. Now the Beatles generation has its own children, and they are horrified at modern punk rock. The beatnik generation, which came in between, still clings to the sound of offbeat folk music. There is nothing necessarily wrong with some of this music, and there is nothing wrong with an occasional nostalgia for childhood, but there can be a real problem when this nostalgia becomes an intransigent refusal to mature. Continuing this parenthesis, America is a strange culture. It glorifies youth, and it provides most people with the means to surround themselves with youthful fictions. Women at 30 years of age, after bearing children, want to be as slim and weightless as they were at age 18, a manifest impossibility. Similarly, the phonograph record and the cassette tape enable people to continue the experience of late teen years via music. Thus, that this kind of intransigent nostalgia is present in the area of faith is no surprise, but it is regrettable. We are called to press on to maturity in every area of life. Thus, I appreciate the Campus Crusade type of college conversion experience. I think it is healthy for many young people, and I don't think it harms anyone. After all, if the reprobate don't persevere in the faith, that is their own fault. The problem is in making this kind of youthful experience the norm for mature Christian faith. The Abundant Life The youthful campus evangelists who addressed us in church that Sunday evening we're very concerned that we come to know the more abundant life that earth can never give. I got the impression that these young people suspected that we stodgy old folks just were not experiencing the abundant life. Scripture clearly tells us that Christ offers a more abundant life. The question, however, is this. Abundant in terms of what? What a teenager perceives as the abundant life may not be, and should not be, the same as what a 35-year-old homemaker or laborer perceives as abundant living. First of all, the glandular emotional quality of life at 18 is not the same as it is at 35. So how we feel about Christ when we are 18 is not likely to be the same as how we feel about Him when we are 35 or 70. Second, as mentioned above, we mature as we get older. Maturity includes an expanded horizon of awareness of the world and life. It includes an expanded sense of time and of how much time it takes to accomplish some matters, even many generations of time. It includes a more profound awareness of pain and suffering. All these grow with age. Moreover, at about age 30, we begin to become much more aware of debilitation and death we begin to realize that, in fact, not all our goals are going to be met. The golden dreams of youth have become tarnished. All the problems are not going to be overcome. Thus, as we get older, we begin to appreciate more and more that this life is transitory. It is a trial run. What we accomplish here is indeed important, but none of us is going to accomplish anywhere near all we set out to accomplish. And we begin to realize that there is much pain and weakness that will not be overcome in this life, and we shall simply have to endure it. This is a much more sober outlook on life than that of the college student.
Young people should dream dreams, and I am glad for the brand of abundant life I experienced in college. In fact, however, I am older now, and that kind of Christian experience is not for me. The mature brand of abundant life is more serious, and in fact, it is more abundant. Reactions Let us return now to the matter of conversion experiences. The Neo-Puritan movement reacted strongly against easy believism. From my experience, they tended to substitute hard believism for it. The Neo-Puritans complain that the campus conversion experience is too superficial. People aren't warned about hell, about the suffering that Christians will face, about predestination, etc. My problem with the Neo-Puritan critique of campus conversion experiences is the same as my problem with campus conversionism. Both groups act as if some big crisis or decision were necessary to come into the faith. Both groups ignore the reality of the faith of young children. In fact, both groups are heavily Baptist, thus typically American in orientation, the Neo-Puritans being almost to a man Reformed Baptists. Both groups put too much stress on an initial conversion experience. The Neo-Puritans don't like the soft-sell, easy conversion. They want a hard-sell gospel with all the hard facts brought out first. They seem to want to manipulate true conversions and eliminate stony ground and thorny ground conversions. This, however, I do not think is biblical. The sower sowed the stony and the thorny ground and did not object to plants that sprang up from this easy and free sowing. Not all persevered, however, a fact that the sower also recognized. Matthew 13, 4-9 and verses 18-23. Perseverance is the real issue here. There is no need to react against simple evangelistic methods such as the four spiritual laws. The issue is not initial conversion. Rather, the issue is perseverance. Once people are brought into the faith, they need to be shepherded into maturity. The four spiritual laws. After all, what is so terribly wrong with the four spiritual laws? The Bible says that God created man good and offered him a wonderful plan. That's law one, and that is exactly where the Bible begins. The Bible says that man rebelled and came under God's wrath and thus cannot know God's wonderful plan. That's law two, and I cannot fault it either. Footnote. The serious problem I see with law two in most booklets is a diagram showing men trying to reach God through ethics, good works, philosophy, other religions, etc. This is completely false. The purpose of ethics, etc., according to the Romans 1, is to help man escape God and suppress all knowledge of him. Rebellious man never tries to reach God. End footnote. The Bible says that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a substitute for us is the only way of salvation. One way. That's law 3. And who wants to question this? The Bible finally says we have to appropriate the gift of eternal life by faith in Christ and persevere in that faith until the end. That's Law 4, and it is true also. Most four law-type booklets warn the reader not to rest on experiences. Observe this train diagram, they read. The engine, God, pulls the train. The coal car, personal faith and trust, provides the fuel. The caboose, the most attractive car, emotional experiences, comes last. The train can run with or without the caboose. It's nice, but not necessary. 
So also with emotional feelings. They are nice, but not absolutely necessary. Trust in God and let your emotions get in line as they will. The Neo-Puritan critique of four-law evangelism generally runs along two lines. First, it is objected by some, not all, that God does not elect everybody. So we ought not to say that God offers a wonderful plan to everybody. The problem with this is that it puts us in God's place. Election is his business. Evangelism is ours. God does offer salvation to all men, covenantally speaking. Second, it is objected that we cannot say God loves you and Christ died for you to all men. This, however, is a linguistic error. In one sense, the full heavy theological sense, it is true that God does not love all men and that Christ did not die for all men. But in ordinary language, which is the level at which evangelism takes place, it certainly is true that God has a love for all men and that the death of Christ brings benefits for all men. Footnote For a thoroughly reformed and Calvinistic discussion of these matters, see Norman Shepard, quote, The Covenant Context for Evangelism, unquote, edited by John Skilton, The New Testament Studies and Theology, Phillipsburg, New Jersey, Presbyterian Reform, 1976, and the interaction on this matter in the pages of the Banner of Truth magazine, issues 166-167 and 170. End footnote. Now, I once tried real well hard to be a Neo-Puritan, but try as I might, I just could not get real excited about the horrors of four-law evangelism. It seems to me that the problem is not with the evangelism, but with the follow-up. Independent evangelistic organizations tend to replace the sacramental fellowship of the church. That, however, I do not think is something to criticize them heavily for. Let the church get to work and do the evangelism, and we shall see the withering way of independent organizations. Until that time, I think most of them do good work. There is clearly a place for theological inspection of easy believism. And there is much value in the criticisms produced by the Neo-Puritans. But I have come to think that some of them, at least, are throwing the baby out with the bath. The Sacramental System Effective pastoral care helps people progress to maturity. Historically, the Christian Church worked out the sacramental system to assist people with the various conversions of life. While we Protestants believe in only two sacraments, It is helpful for us to look at the sacramental system because there is some wisdom in it. As a young person begins to approach maturity, his understanding undergoes a shift, called puberty nowadays. To harness this change and minister the needed stage conversion, the church has used the rite of confirmation. Youth are told that they must become soldiers of Christ. The military imagery helps them harness their new drives and channels them toward productive things. Protestant churches that do not practice confirmation tend to have equivalent things, such as catechism classes or teenage youth groups. Everybody understands that this is a crisis stage in life, and youth need help in converting through it. Marriage is another crisis. Generally, people are so happy to get married that they do not recognize that there are going to be problems and that some conversions are going to be needed. The old sacrament of matrimony was designed to ask for God's special blessing on the couple getting married, and while Protestants don't call it a sacrament, rightly, they do the same kind of thing. 
Sickness is a crisis that generally causes people to reassess their lives, leading to what we are calling conversions, renewed faith in Christ. The sacrament of unction was designed to provide a place for pastoral ministration in this time of need. While Protestants again don't call this a sacrament, Protestants do often obey James 5.15 and anoint the sick. But how about the daily conversions, and the crises that come from time to time, and the hidden stage changes that we undergo? The old church set up the confessional to provide pastoral care for this, the sacrament of penance. People would come to the pastor and talk over their problems in the confessional box. It is a little enough known fact, but the Protestant reformers tried to retain the practice of confession in the church because they saw it as a healthy way to minister to people. James 5, verse 16. Protestants generally have not worked out a good way to deal with this, but the rise of the modern counseling movement in Protestant circles is an attempt to help people with the crises and needed conversions of life. Food for thought? I think so. Along these same lines, one Protestant substitute for the confessional, in America at least, has been the rededication service. By having a week of special meetings annually, the Baptistic churches provide an opportunity for persons in crisis, or who have moved to a new stage of maturity, to externalize this crisis in a ritual of rededication to Christ. Unfortunately, the Baptist theology of conversion often comes into play here, and people tend to think that they were not really Christians until the day they walked the aisle. All the same, this is another way in which the church has provided opportunities for people to handle the crises and changes of life. Rather than ridicule these customs, Catholic and Baptist, we Reformed Christians ought to ask whether or not there is something to be learned from them. What regular means do we provide in our churches for people to approach with ease their pastors and ask for serious counseling? Both the confession box and the rededication service provide situations wherein people can feel free to discuss their problems and change their lives. Until we have worked out something along these lines, I don't think that we are really doing our jobs. Counseling cases pile up precisely because our churches do not have regular ways of handling problems before they come up. The sacramental system in the Roman Catholic Church is hardly perfect, but the way Protestants have come to handle the crises and conversions of life has not proven adequate either. It should be on our agenda to give some serious consideration to reforming our teaching and practice in this area. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.